This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century. Such a great century. With a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool, and he's also the advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Hi, bro. Hello, Allison. Today, we're going to look at the fast-growing industry of robo-advisors. Maybe you've seen an ad for Betterment or Wealthfront and wondered, what is it all about? Could a robot, by which we mean not literally a robot, really manage your portfolio just as well as a human and at a fraction of the cost? We'll find out. We'll also answer your question about how you can use your investor skills to evaluate an employer. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Now it's time for Answers, Answers. And today's question comes from Jeff. Jeff writes, Hello, Allison and Bro. I'm currently looking at new employment opportunities, and as a novice but enthusiastic investor, I'm wondering if there are any particular pieces of info you would recommend looking into for a publicly traded company to help decide if it would be a good move. Are there any particular metrics worth researching, and what kind of information can you glean from them? Well, Jeff, that's a great idea. I mean, the interesting thing about considering working for a publicly traded company is a lot of information about the company is public. public. That's right. I knew it. Because the companies have to uh, do quarterly reports, known as the 10Q, and an annual report, known as the 10K. Plus, there are probably lots of research reports about the company, a lot of analysts talking about it. So, I think actually looking at all that information is a great source of information to see if you want to work there, but also research to do before you go to the interview, so you could sound a little educated about the company. Um, so uh, I actually posed this question to a couple of the folks on our investment analyst team to see what they would look for, and got a couple of good responses. One was from Brendan Matthews, and he was on our episode about Warren Buffett a couple episodes back. He offered three ideas. First, measures of sales, gross, and or operating profit per employee. And, and Brendan says that higher usually means more ability to pay employees salary and perks, right? So if you're a more profitable company, you're going to be more generous with your payouts. Uh, number two, measures of growth. So you're looking for rates of sales and profit growth historically and expected in the future because growing companies offer much greater potential for advancement and promotion. And the third one he suggested was variability of sales and profit margins. If a company is up and down as a result of maybe being in a boom and bust industry, you know you're going to have less job security. Uh, and then Abby Malin, who works on our Hidden Gems service, actually thought about uh, employee turnover. And the example she used is when they analyzed a money management firm out in Ohio called Diamond Hill. They saw that its analyst turnover is basically about zero since 1999. Whoa! So, that tells you that the people there are either very happy or chained to their desks, but that indicates probably that they're wait, happy. Wait, so for fifth, six, wait, when, what year did you say again? Since 1999. Since 19, so for the last 17 years, no analysts have left the she company? Said, she said more or less, yes. Zero turnover. That's crazy. Yeah. So, that's an indication of a company that you probably doing something right by its employees. But not, probably not a lot of room for advancement, because you got to wait for people to die. Well, there is a high murder rate at this company. Oh, this well, <laughs> there's another stat you're going to want to look at, Jeff. Anyways, um, so you might ask, well, where can you get some of this information? Some of it is in the financial documents that are referred to, and you can go to 
the company's investor relations site, it'll have the annual reports, the quarterly reports, also have um, the annual letter from the CEO, and you'll find a lot of that information. Some of it you will have to dig for, uh, probably in reports from other analysts covering the company. Things like employee turnover may not be in maybe the 10Q or the 10K, but you can find it. Um, and then, of course, there are other places to look for information about companies in general, um, like Glassdoor is one that we've talked a lot about here at The Molly Fool. Um, and apparently, an up and coming one nowadays is Quora, especially if you are in the tech industry. Uh, apparently, a lot of people are putting questions there, like especially when there are rumors about companies, like, oh. is it true that at this company this happens? A lot of folks will jump in and answer that. But if you could put all that together, I think you'll find a lot of information that'll help you with the interview, but also decide if you actually want to work there. There you go. A bunch of sites and numbers and stats and research that you can do to put your skills and an investor at work to finding a job at a good employer. Good luck. This episode is sponsored by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Maybe you're looking to refinance your home, or maybe you're thinking about buying your first home, or maybe that house that you really liked, it fell through, and you're kind of bummed. But don't worry, there'll be another one. People always say there will be another one. Well, you might as well check out Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, because they make it easy. You can do it all online or through their app. It only takes eight steps. So, if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLS Consumer Access org number 3030. According to at least one estimate, robo-advisors are expected to manage roughly two trillion with a T dollars by 2020, a mere four years from now. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. <laughs> Today, Nick, we have Nick Crow. He is what is your title here? <laughs> President of Motley Fool Wealth Management. President of Motley Fool Wealth Management. Thank you for making me say that. <laughs> I voted for him. <laughs> I'm sure I voted for you many times. President of Motley Fool Wealth Management a sister company of The Motley Fool. And he's here to help us understand the industry of robo-advising and if it might be a good fit for you, our dear listeners. So, what are we talking about when we're talking about a robo-advisor? Because it's not it's not a robot. No, it's not a robot. And I don't think that all the uh, leaders or the people working at these robo-advisors like to think of themselves as robo-advisors either. Um, I think media has painted everyone with that same brush. What we're really talking about here is a registered investment advisors who are online delivering their advice and investment management using using that medium. Some of them, though, are highly automated, if not completely automated, so that leans more towards like what we should actually call, hey, that's a robo-advisor, where others have living, breathing people who you need to talk to and who are providing the advice to you, and it just happens to be through maybe Skype online or some other some other tool they're using to deliver that advice. And so, we have a whole continuum of um, living, breathing advisors, all the robo-advisors, and somewhere in the middle, are most of those advisors that might be considered a hybrid advisor at this time. So, we should expect, though, over time, perhaps, because it scales better, more of them to move towards that robo-model where more of the advice is delivered algorithmically, more of the trading in people's accounts is actually done completely automated instead of having you know, people do that work. So, you could see a trend move that way, unless the customer says, hey, you know what, I like talking to people, so that, that might swing the pendulum the other way. So, for robo-advisors, when we're talking about robo-advisors, what kind of service are they 
doing for me. So for the let's swing to the fully automated side of of the spectrum here. What did what do they do for me? This is professional discretionary account management. What that means is that somebody um, that firm that robo advisor has absolute control over your account. So they're picking the securities. They're providing the asset allocation advice for you, like the, how risky a portfolio should be invested in. They're implementing those strategies for you. And depending on the feature set of the, the given robo advisor, they might be rebalancing or using a number of other ways that they try to add value throughout the year. Because largely, when we talk about this space, we're talking about passive investment vehicles. So they've got limited areas where they can actually add value. And passive investment, define that for me, please. Uh, think of it as index investing um, rather than you know stock picking. So ETFs, index, um, index funds, that kind of right. thing. You got it. But there's like you used to mention an algorithm. So do I go for a fully automated robo advisor? I do I go to a website and they're like, tell us how much money you have. Tell us tell us how much risk you want to take on. How old are you? Like what kind of factors sure. are they? And then do they take all those factors and then be like, you should be in this much stocks, this much bonds, this much. Whatever. That's almost exactly how this works. First, know that these are registered investment advisors who all have a fiduciary obligation to their clients. But it's a robot. It's it's a firm. Okay. Which happens to use software to manage your money. Okay. And so this software, they'll have uh, questions and answers, on, you know, questions you're able to uh, fill out online to tell you about your, tell them about yourself, so they can manage according to your risk tolerance and your objectives and your goals. And everyone's kind of going at this at a little bit different approach, but ultimately they have to figure out a few things, like what's your investment time uh, horizon. What's your willingness and ability to take on risk? Um, I mean, those are the real factors they're trying to consider, but there's lots of different ways to get after that. And personally, the more a behavioral base they get, I think the more accurate those models tend to be. So they figure who you are, and just like you said, they figure out what your asset allocation should be. The most simple version of that is just what is the stock bond mix that you should be in. But it gets much more complicated than that. I mean, some of these robo advisors are cutting up things into like 20 different asset classes and providing advice across all of those. And then, so on the one spectrum, we've got fully automated algorithm. I give them my money, they figure me out, and they asset they asset allocate you. Asset, yeah, that is literally <laughs> what I did. I just tried to verb asset allocation. <laughs> they asset allocate me, uh, and then on the other spec um, side of the spectrum, it is a living, breathing human financial advisor. It just so happens that they are. We never meet in person, and it's always skyping and that kind of thing. Well, or let's do think they about still what use? Let's see what a human advisor relationship looks like anyway. You might sit across a table from someone, but it's unlikely they're coming up with that asset allocation and that advice just out of their head. There's a couple of ways they might do that. They might be interfacing with software on their desktop there in order to provide that advice, or some um, you know investment strategists higher up in the companies built a few different models for them, and they're just there to interview their client and determine which of those models is best. So when we think about these algorithms, it's not unique necessarily to robo advisors that they're using math to determine these things. What's unique is they're delivering it online. And by delivering it online, they're able to help more people than any individual advisor can do. And if we look at the fees they're charging, they can do that at a lower cost, or at least they aspire to, because many of them are not turning a profit. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, so, let's yeah. talk about some of the major players um, here in the robo-advising space. Because there's a lot of them, right, bro? Right. When I, I'm doing research for this, and I, re I read about this stuff off and on pretty regularly. And the thing is, it's a very new thing. So many players, uh, new players all the time, and even the players who've been around for a few years, and if you've been around for a few years, you're a veteran robo advisor Great. at this point. <laughs> the terms are changing, they're offering new features, they're lowering their prices, they're lowering their minimums. Um, so it's very difficult to say, this particular robo advisor offers this and this one charges this. 
But we do know that there are ones like Personal Capital and Vanguard, which are more of these hybrids. And it's really the intake where you get the personal touch. That first few, those first few conversations, they want to get to understand your situation, risk tolerance. They might incorporate other assets. We've talked in previous episodes about how you might incorporate an annuity or Social Security into your asset allocation. But then they'll put you into a certain profile or a bucket. And then from there, it's mostly automated. Um, one of the big questions for me about it is, um, I actually would prefer to call these robo-managers because they're managing your assets. When you think of like a financial advisor, not only do you want investment advice, but you also want to know whether you're saving enough for retirement or if there are ways you can save on your taxes or when you should take your Social Security. And most of these robo-advisors aren't really going to do that for you. And if they do, it's just through a calculator on their website. So, this is, is a situation where if, you're, if you want help with someone to manage your investments, this is a good solution. If you're, if you're looking for a more comprehensive financial plan, these may not be the solutions for you. Right. Okay, so you mentioned personal capital, Vanguard. What are some other names that people would probably recognize? Or uh, Wealthfront and Betterment would definitely be top of mind for most people. Um, Schwab deserves a mention there as well. Um, you know, just a huge player in, in the uh, brokerage industry and, and broke into a robo advisor business, if you will, um, relatively recently, but with a lot of a uh, lot of success there. And then ourselves, I mean, uh, Motley Fool Wealth Management. Some would classify us as a robo advisor. Um, I would consider us more of a hybrid advisor. We're delivering advice online. We also offer comprehensive financial planning, which I think hits on Bro's point there. It's not just um, a robo-manager or investment management. We offer a comprehensive suite of services. Uh, when you look at these different firms, um, their delivery models are, seem very similar online. And to understand to, this, to the extent that they're automated, you need to think about what can be automated here. So, if it's simply just the delivery of the asset allocation online, all of these players could be automated. What we're noticing with the hybrids that Bro mentioned with Vanguard and Personal Capital, the upfront call that you have, though it's framed to be with a financial professional, and I'm not suggesting they're not financial professionals. I'm suggesting that they're probably more salespeople than they're actually someone there to um, give you a comprehensive financial plan. So it's going to be limited probably to that investment management conversation unless you have uh, large enough assets that a, um, a comprehensive conversation is profitable for those businesses. The other players that we just mentioned largely are just, like you said, robo managers in that case. And I think that's a nice way to frame that, bro. And then what, what about the fees? You said that it goes from Obviously, higher if you need more of a financial plan down to lower. What what kind of fees are we You're talking? You're looking at a range. Um, generally, just to think about what advisors might cost you is usually a layering of fees. So if you think about the advice that a financial planner might give you comprehensively, maybe that's in the one percent range plus whatever um, vehicles that they're investing you in. And I mean that could be up to debate in a, in a certain range. These here are significantly cheaper than that on average. We're looking at some as as high as eighty nine basis points and as low as free. They suggest to you there's. Uh, anytime someone tells you something's free, you got to recognize you're, right. you're, you're uh, paying for this in, in other ways. Yeah. But I, I think that that free, even if even if you took the darkest view of it, is still a pretty attractive price for clients. And um, I mean, I really believe this is probably the very best period in human history to be an investor and to be someone looking, at, you know, out on the web or anywhere for investment advice. Where I mean, the do democratization of investment advice at a very fair price is just phenomenal. I mean, it'll be better each year after this, but. Most people didn't have access to really robust um, asset allocations based on modern portfolio theory that are tailored to them, unless they had significantly more assets than these firms are talking about. So you asked about fees, but more importantly, like, what are the minimums here? Like, how does someone get started? Some of the minimums here are zero. 
Some are five hundred dollars. Some are five thousand. It's twenty five thousand dollars to be with me because we have a we have a different model. Is not not investing in ETFs like all these other um, robo advisors that we're talking about investing in stocks. So there's limitations there. But you even just think about that. I mean that is that's incredible. Uh, Ten years ago, if you were to ask what it'd be like to get this level of personalization, and uh, I couldn't say. Every firm is this way, but I would say it would cluster probably around five hundred thousand to a million dollars to get that level of advice. So how great is it that people starting out in their financial life with five hundred dollars or five thousand dollars can start getting something that's personalized to them and, and build that at least that investment management plan going forward? It still isn't a comprehensive solution. And then how about let's talk performance? Sure. How how you talked about how other firms, uh, not Molly Full Wealth Management, but other other firms are mostly in index funds, ETFs. Those are cheap options, um, but that means beating the market is probably not an option as well. Yeah, I mean that's mostly off the table for them in this case. By definition, they're buying the index fund minus the fee. That should be the performance you receive in any of those asset allocation sleeves that they might be managing for you. To the extent that they have some strong insight in those asset allocations, they're able to position a client uh, perhaps tactically better than someone else. Maybe you get lucky there and have an opportunity to to beat on a risk-adjusted basis. But I'd say in from what I can see, from just observing as a potential consumer and, and as a competitor to these firms, I don't see anyone adding a ton of value in that in that way, particularly in, in trying to be tactical and moving those asset allocations at at the best time. What I do see is interesting things like um, individual tax loss harvesting and rebalancing scenarios. That at least the the people who are putting forth the white papers on these items and, and offering them to their clients believe that they'll be able to generate some some value in the range of anywhere from really zero to about two percent annually. I've, I take a pretty critical look at, at that as far as we should really, as an in- industry, question um, whether we should throw those numbers around because they're, they're back tested and, and they're based in, in math. And I get it, but uh, <laughs> right. I mean, it's not like the, the issue is, first of all, a lot of these are new. And secondly, it's not like a mutual fund. If you're considering a mutual fund, you go to Morningstar and you look at the historical performance. You can't really do that with these because each person has their own account. So when you go to the websites, they will have like, if you had followed our models for the past 20 years, if they had actually existed, you would have seen these results. And it's very possible, but it's also hypothetical. So you don't right. really know what the performance will be. Yeah. But but that said, we are in passive vehicles here, so we have a, we have an understanding of what those things will probably look like going forward, right? And we have it very low cost. So anyone who's listening here and who really just hasn't invested in their life, these these are things for you to consider if if you don't have the uh, the time, willingness, or interest, or ability to do this yourself, then just because performance numbers are unknown, I don't think that should disqualify um, this type of vehicle for you. Right, right. So, for someone who's interested in maybe checking out some robo-advisors, we talked about how there's a lot of options out there. What are a couple that you like? And I realize that you are the president of Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool. And so, I don't want you to sell yourself short in what you guys do down there on the first floor, too. Okay, well, let's talk about um, how we're different first, since you're giving me the opportunity, it sounds like, to at least say, I like what we're doing as well. You should like what you're doing, because you're the one doing it. That's right. All the firms we've talked about so far, as far as I know, are taking a largely passive strategy. It's index investing, and that's great. If you don't believe that with skill someone can beat the market, then you should not be with me. You should be with one of these other firms. I think all the firms we've listed here are doing things that are interesting and seem to be run by you know upstanding individuals. I think in in sum, the robo-advisors, the people I've talked to there and what I see on the web are good for the industry overall. So I think this should be something that is heartwarming for, for consumers and they're looking out and thinking about getting started investing. Any one of these players um, should be someone they should look at. Look at. 
Um, but if you do believe that with skill you have the opportunity and, and perhaps the probability of um, beating the market, then a firm like ours is perhaps more interesting to you because we are attempting to add value through security selection and individual stock ownership within those portfolios. And that's a big difference between us and all of the people we've talked about, which makes us a lot less robo-like and a lot more like a traditional advisor. Um, so, which one of these do I like if I wasn't going to go ahead and say, hey, come to Motley Fool Wealth Management, foolwealth.com? Uh, <laughs> I was a sister site of the Motley Fool. Oh, no, that's right. Uh, you know, the one on here that I found most interesting uh, recently would be, uh, would be Betterment. Right now, they are of the ones who are independent and not part of a large platform like Schwab or, or Vanguard. They've been the fastest growing over the time I've been watching them, seem to double it every six months. Uh, so. They've also been spending very heavily on advertisements and stuff. We got all that stuff going on. But what I've noticed is they've they've gone after the 401k market. They've gone after the retail. They've been out there long enough. They they publish their their white papers and their their APIs that, that the ways that some of the tech processes that they have. They seem particularly transparent. And um, the CEO there, John Stein, seems like a really well grounded guy. Having Nick here actually demonstrates another reason why robo advisor is not a great term, and that. People think it's a robot, but for all of the investment models and decisions, there are big brains behind it, including Nick's big brain. Look at that big brain. Look at on that Nick. big brain. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's the president of the company, and I'm making jokes about his big brain. But that's what we do here on Molly Full Answers. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. Hopefully, you'll come back again. Not too soon. Oh. <laughs> We often talk about building better habits, both on the show and in life, because I have a three-year-old and I feel like I'm constantly telling her to make good choices. <laughs> As we know, 90% of being successful in life is about consistently making smart decisions. So, Bro is here today to talk about some extreme measures that you can take to maybe beat those particularly stubborn bad habits. Yes. And it comes. Uh, the inspiration for today's discussion comes from an article that I saw um, on the BBC. It's essentially a company called Intelligence Environments. Okay, sounds good. That is developing a technology that works with the Pavlock wristband, and I'll talk about that in a second. Essentially, once your bank account gets below a certain level, it shocks you. So it, des it delivers. Uh, I think it was 250 volts, something like that. To basically say you should stop spending money at this point. Mm -hmm. um, so there are two things with that. First of all, it's just kind of a, helps you monitor things, um, but also it's providing a little bit of negative reinforcement, shall we say? Yes. Um, so I looked into this Pavlock thing, um, and it was started. The company was started by a guy named Manish Sethi, uh, and he became somewhat famous because when he was at Stanford, he would find himself not doing his work, but looking at things like Facebook and stuff like that. So what did he do? He did what we all do. He hired someone off of Craigslist to slap him what? every time he goes on Facebook. He paid a girl $8 an hour uh. to sit next to him and slap him whenever he was not paying attention. And he monitored his productivity with something called Rescue Time, which I've used in the past. It monitors basically how you use your computer and it provides a report every week and says, you goofed off or you didn't. And whenever he had someone sitting next to him, slapping him when he goofed off, he quadrupled his productivity. Okay. Um, and he started a productivity website. Um, and the, he concluded that it wasn't really the slapping 
that help so much as much as the the social like being sitting there Rick, Rick is <laughs> behind the glass turning red and tearing up he's laughing so hard but keep going bro uh, <laughs> what did he learn from having a woman sit next to him and slap him I, I should say <laughs> he did not specifically say a woman when he put the ad on Craigslist I think he said he got 20 replies within within an hour. And he said, you can sit there and do your own work. You just have to keep an eye on what I'm doing. And he said, really, it's, the, it's that someone is there keeping an eye on you. Anyways, so he told this to one of his friends. And they then came up with the idea of sort of like a shock collar, like a dog collar that shocked you. And they built one. And that eventually led to the Pavlock, which is now something you can buy. It does shock you, but you can also set it for vibrate. You could also set it for um, just an alarm. You could set it like if I don't wake up at a certain point, it'll shock me. You could put someone else in control of it. So if you don't go to the gym or, in the case of money, if they have access to your bank account and they notice that you are below a certain amount, something like that, they can shock you. Um, so I just thought it was kind of... It's just kind of. Is this taking accountability to the next level? It is. It is. Um, so whether or not you need a shocking wristband or not, I think the main lesson really is that you make. If you really have trouble with your spending or really any other goal, going to the gym or anything else, it's better to bring other people and get them involved. And there are a couple of ways to do that. Um, we, I think we've talked before about apps, apps like Stick. Um, and another one called Make Me. I mean, basically, you're putting money on the line. You are betting that I'm going to go to the gym or do some other goal. And if I don't, either A, everyone else gets that money, or B, that money goes to a charity or organization that I don't support. Um, and then another way to add some accountability to it that people have done is either they have, they've announced publicly that they have this goal, Perhaps on Facebook, perhaps perhaps their, on a podcast, perhaps on a podcast, perhaps to their Twitter users, and they either tweet or post their spending every day, or um, they tweet their level or or post their level of debt so that people can see that it is coming down. And it, and you have to have something on the line. And studies show that you are going to be more sensitive to losing money than gaining money, about twice as much. So it is more important to say, I'm going to have this money on the line if I don't do it, rather than if I do do it, I get this reward. Um, but studies also say, if you can do both, that's better. So someone also did write us recently, because they wanted to know the progress on our accountability projects, which for listeners who don't recall, uh, Rick he had the goal of setting up and funding his kids' 529 accounts. And Bro had the goal of creating a weekly family state of the finances report. Mm -hmm. And my goal was uh, to get a will done. And so, Rick? Check, check. Hey, you Good did for it. you. Good job. Automatically depositing every month. Nice. Good job. Good job. Okay, Bro, how about you? Uh, yes, for the most part. I mean, we do now have a report coming from Mint every week, uh, and I've augmented that, not every week, but frequently with stuff that's not included in Mint, like our Motley Fool stock and things like that. I would say that I think to take it to the next level, it would have to be a situation where my wife and I actually sit down and go over it together. It's been more difficult because we are in the process of moving, but that's my probably future goal with this. Okay. And you, Allison, have you done your thing? 
So we are, we have made progress towards our thing. We have filled out the huge questionnaire that our lawyer gave us, and now we need to just go back and forth and tidy it up a bit. So, no, I'm the only failure here. So. You're making progress. Give yourself credit. Thanks. Give yourself credit. One of the studies I read in preparation for this episode was that the for people who procrastinate, the more you beat yourself up for procrastinating, the more likely you are to procrastinate in the future. Forgive yourself for your imperfections. Move forward. Make a change. Something like that. My imperfections are so few. That's true. That is true. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's show. If you want to drop us a line, our email is answers at fool.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Motley Fool Podcast. We've got a uh, closed group that you can join and we can all talk about carrots and sticks and slapping and whatever. (laughs) And we... (laughs) It's a safe environment. environment. It is a safe environment. We're also on Twitter at Answers Podcast. And I don't know, I guess that's enough enough to keep you busy until the next time we talk again. So the show is edited habitually by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm